everybody. Welcome to the Poetry Space. Hey, Carla. Hey, Tim. Hey, to Dick Westheimer, Mark Danowski. Good to see you guys already in here. How are you doing today, Tim? I'm good, Katie. How are you doing? I, my voice is a little crackly still. <laughs> everybody can hear. But I feel a lot better than I did on the Rattlecast on Monday, so that's good. Well, it sounds like a nice fireside chat we're having here now. Like, I picture, like, maybe we should work a ghost story in there, too. <laughs> see. That's, that's not a bad cool. idea. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So... Welcome everybody to the Poetry Space. Today we're going to be taking a more in-depth look at something we've talked about a few times already, which is the way I see it as tackling the issue of immediacy in poetry, which in this particular space is going to be looking at news poems and current event type poems. So we're going to go into looking at what makes a great current event poem for those looking to uh, go ahead and be able to submit something actionable (laughs) from this space, Uh, common things that editors don't like as much and then different ways to go ahead and publish these poems or curate these poems and have them out in the world. But first, I guess we have to tackle the subject of if we should even be writing news poems. So what do you think? Yeah, that is something I want to talk about. Should we do an opening poem, though? Are you all set? (laughs) We should do an opening poem, because I also really need to pin all of these wonderful tweets people shared with me to the space. So as usual, Tim, you are correct. Okay, well, let's start with this opening poem. Um, I went through all, um, how many was it? 473 or something? What was it? 743? I wrote down the number. 753 poems that we published and try to pick out my favorite for my uh, tweet thread this morning. And I think the best pure poem might be this because of the great metaphors. And ironically, it's by Sonny Greenfield, who we'll talk about later, uh, is really one of the inspirations for Poets Respond in the first place. But this is um, a spokesperson. A spokesperson said, "Thoughts and prayers go out." And this was written after I don't know if everyone even remembers Stephen Sotloff, the journalist. I think who was um, um, was he taken hostage? In I can't even remember the story. But um, but but uh, the spokesperson at the White House said, "Thoughts and prayers go out to Stephen Sotloff's family." I think he was um, you know captured by ISIS or someone. I don't even remember. This is how long ago uh, nine years ago the poet respond goes back. But, um, um, and this was Sonia's reaction to that phrase, which you just keep hearing all the time. So Sonia Greenfield, a spokesperson said, thoughts and prayers go out. Out like what? Whispers in a tin can tied with yarn a thousand miles long to the can of a woman, her ear desperately pressed to its emptiness. Like a loon song transmitted by Morse. Can you fathom the miles of murky ocean that whale must sing through? Did you know some people believe all sounds ever made are still present, hovering like butterflies? Even say the whir of a copy machine out there in the ether, sent flying when the first plane hit? Do you see voices as monarch wings wheeling through the sky? If you shout from the window of a thousand-foot tower before you fall, where does the scrap of voice go? Is it still falling? You mean go out like candles snuffed by the wind? You mean out like empathy in tiny increments marching like ants made of sound across the wires of the world? Did she just hear an Our Father whiz past? I'm sorry, I'm sorry, she said. I think you're breaking up. And so that was uh, Sonny Greenfield's reaction to that, you know, platitude that we just hear politicians saying over and over again that means nothing. And uh, every time you hear that phrase or I hear that phrase, I think of that poem. So it's one of the ones that really stuck with me over the years. Yeah, that's really amazing. And so why don't you talk to you about how you started then with Poets Respond? Since you were talking about Sonia Greenfield with that poem, it seems fitting. Yeah, so around 2010, I got a poem, um, it, it was a submission from Sonia about the Sago mine disaster. And if everyone remembers that, that was 2006. And there was a mine cave in, and I think there were 27 miners maybe stuck. And there was all the drama of getting them out. Um, it was called Sago, West Virginia was the name of her poem. And um, we published that in Rattle um, in the magazine itself in issue number uh, 36, I think it was. And I just remember thinking at the time, gosh, wouldn't it be great to publish a poem like this during, you know, while the event was going on or shortly after, because it was such a powerful poem and a way to connect on an emotional level. And it made poetry really relevant. Um, but then five years later, it was kind of looking back at it um, in a way that was interesting, but not as interesting as it would be at the time that it was actually going on or still in everybody's collective memory, because we forget about all these stories that are in the news. So uh, so that happened. And I always was thinking, like, how could we do that? Like, what could we do 
you know, how could we have a, a system that would work? And so that had been in the back of my head for a while, for a couple of years. And then there was the, um, um, the shooting in Santa Barbara, that mass shooting um, with Elliot Rogers was the guy's name. And uh, Seth Abramson, who is now famously a, um, uh, a Trump writer, um, but I'm a former lawyer, but he's a poet too. And he was a metamodernist, he calls it. So he takes a lot of found poetry and remixes it into stuff. And he took a found poem of Elliot Rogers' um, manifesto and, and turned that into a poem. And that was in sort of, I think it was May 25th, maybe it was published um, on the Huffington Post where he had a column. And there was some sort of outrage about it and some discussion about it. And I just thought, you know, poetry can do so much more than, than that kind of thing. Uh, and I wanted it you know, have a chance to see actual reactions to things. So that's when I finally decided to do it and put out a call for submissions for Poets Respond and, and you know, gave it that name. And uh, then June 1st, a week later, we had our first poem and we've been doing it for almost nine years ever since. So that's how it started and it just continues. We've had, um, you know, pulling up those numbers again, we've had, um, um, where did they go? I have the number. You have the number? Okay, go that. ahead. <laughs> yeah, I can say there is there are an average of 188 poems per week. So you've had 753 poems curated from a whopping 88,000 submissions. So that is a 0.85% acceptance rate, which makes me feel very proud, even more proud to be among the 0.85% uh, that's on there. And then so the biggest ever week that you guys had was a max of uh, 1,263 submissions, which was the first week of pandemic lockdowns, which must have been a little bit of a shock to log into your submittable for you guys that day. Yeah, it definitely was. We had to raise our submittable cap, which we'd been told was like an unreachable cap. <laughs> so I can't, I'm not even allowed to say what our cap is now. They, they asked me not to. But, um, you know, when you get <laughs> when you get 12,000 a week and everyone is on... Um, you know, in, in home in a pandemic. I mean, we got a lot, we had, I don't know, we had thousands and thousands of submissions that, that month. Uh, so that was a very, a very time intensive, uh, you know, everybody else sort of was locked at home trying to find things to keep themselves occupied. And I was just trying to keep up. I guess too, we should just say for, for those, I think a lot of our audience is familiar with the process to submit, but basically if I can summarize and you can tell me if I'm accurate, because it's been a while since I submitted this, but basically, you write a poem about the current events like of that week, and then you submit the poem by Friday at, is it midnight Eastern or something like that? And then you guys pick the poem on Saturday, right? And then it's published on Sunday. So the immediacy is like insanely, insanely high. Yeah, it's midnight Pacific. And um, I try to, you know, Megan reads first, then I read second nowadays. And um, and so I try to have the poems picked Saturday morning if possible. Sometimes if it's a lot of them and it's a hard decision, it stretches to the afternoon or even, you know, on those weeks like the pandemic, it was like 6 p.m. on Saturday before I finally, you know, got through and picked the poem because it was, uh, you know, hours and hours of work trying to decide which one of the so many poems to pick. But, um, but yeah, and then we published it the very next day. And almost always people are, respond right away with audio. So we still have audio of the poet reading it on Sunday. And then um, when there's extra poems too, um, you know, I squeeze them in during the week when we have openings on the daily poem cycle. So um, that's why we've published more than, than a poem a week. It's uh, it's actually an average of like 1.8 poems a week, I think, if you do the math on that. So, um, yeah, so we just keep publishing them. And, and it's it's been really interesting to experience the news this way. And I don't watch the news at all myself. And so it's sort of a way to experience at least the uh, demographic of poets' collective consciousness and what they're absorbing, because I get to see what everybody's thinking about and talking about and the way that that sort of tends to move in unison, which is really interesting too. All right. Well, you're going to have to talk about not watching the news. You're an informed, very intelligent person who just casually said you don't watch the news at all. So I think now it's time to talk about this aspect of <laughs> news poems. Yeah. Well, I, I just hate the news and I've had a, a hatred of news for a very long time. Um, you know, my dad sort of ingrained in me that, uh, from an early age, you know, always telling me not to trust anything. He had a, like I say, he had an intelligence background. And so he would tell me, you know, don't believe any of this. This story is not true. This story is not true. And, um, and I, um, you know, I, I didn't really feel it though, until I had my own experience with this. And so actually the very last tweet, I don't know if you saw it, Katie, um, I tweeted a picture on that tweet thread, if you could pull it up for, uh, or pin it, 
But um, it was 15 years ago. I was sitting in a coffee shop in um, Rochester, New York, back visiting home, uh, writing a short story, actually, not a poem, unfortunately. And uh, as I was sitting there, I looked up and a car crashed through the window and came sort of barreling toward me in slow motion. I had time to jump on the hood to keep from being crushed by the car against the wall. Uh, if you can find that picture, uh, you can see the chair that I was sitting in, like in the dent in the wall behind me. Um, and the thing is, too, I just moved because I was writing on a laptop and I'd been sitting in the window with my back to that, that where the car crashed in. And um, I, the sun, the glare of the sun had just gotten onto the computer and started annoying me. So I'd moved like five minutes before to the other side of the room where it was still dark, or I might have been, you know, underneath the car or covered in glass or who knows what. But um, so I had that experience. And then, um, you know, the media came and the, you know, the ambulance people came and stuff and everything, everything was fine. It wasn't like a, a big deal. But, um, but all the news stories came out. It was in every paper locally. It was on every news channel. And um, every single story was completely wrong. <laughs> um, if, you, if you'd watched the news, you would have thought that, because this is what they said, that it was a crowded coffee shop. Um, the owner saw the car coming and yelled, watch out, everybody. And then there was a man pinned beneath the car that people had to help get out. There was this whole dramatic story still in every paper for the archives and the Rochester Democrat and Chronicle and everywhere. And it's completely fictitious. The, uh, I was the only one in the coffee shop the uh, the owner of the place was like in the back kitchen, didn't even she heard it happen and came running out. I wasn't I was the only one who could have been pinned under the car, but I was sitting on the hood. The whole thing was completely fake. And um, and it made me start to think about how, you know, if this my my experience with the news is completely fake, how many other stories are completely fake? And uh, and I came across this this concept uh, of Gelman amnesia. I don't know if anybody's familiar with that. It was um, invented by or coined by Michael Crichton, the, the science fiction author, um, kind of poking fun at his friend Murray Gell-Mann, a, a physicist. But, um, but Murray would always complain about any time there was a physics-based article in the newspaper or in ca any kind of magazine about how wrong they got everything. And you know every single fact was wrong. They didn't understand anything about what was going on. But then he would turn the page and read a story about the war going on then or whatever and assume everything was true. And that's the kind of thing that we all do. Whereas if we know the content of the story, we assume or we realize that it's all wrong. But um, if, we, if we don't, we assume it's true. And, uh, and so he calls that Gelman amnesia to, to make fun of Murray. But that's just so pervasive. Like everything in the news is fake. Um, everything is wrong. And it induces, it's designed to induce such anxiety and stress. And... Um, and, and there's a point at which we have to wonder, like, what we're gaining out of it, like reading fake news that makes us anxious, that puts us in this fight or flight mode, triggers the limbic system, um, corrodes our cardiovascular system and all the bad things cortisol does. Uh, why are we even doing this? And so I really don't watch the news, don't pay attention to it, because, um, you know, the only way you can get to the truth is by reading really deeply about everything and sort of thinking about the motivations of the people that are telling you the stories and then triangulating from everything you have. And then you have a guess at what the news or what the reality really is. But it's so hard to do that you don't have time to do it for everything. And so um, why pay attention to fake news and stress yourself out is my opinion of it. Sorry, that's, that's a long story. I've been talking a lot already. Well, I warned you, you're going to have to do this space. And it was good because there was a dog barking in the background for me. So I was especially thankful <laughs> that you wanted to say that. For me, too, I have noticed um, when I've had periods in my life where I've watched the news more, um, notably when I had newborn babies and was watching, you know, stuff in the middle of the night or whatever, too, that it did sort of cue me into a negative anxiety spiral state. It's really easy to uh, to become overwhelmed with the negativity in the news. And I don't know how much it is. I mean, I think a lot of people would say, well, you have to learn about the news or history repeats itself. And I don't know how how much that's actually uh, the case anymore. It's not enough just to learn about it, but to make actions that are different. And I think that sometimes our actions are slowed by our absorption of other people's biases presented as though they're not biased, but everybody is. So yeah. I'd be curious. Oh, go ahead. Oh, I was just going to say, you should respond to that, and then we should hear from George Posada, because I think he has a, his hand up and an opinion on this, but go ahead first. 
Yeah, and it's just the, the model of news itself. It's systemic. So even though we're talking about mostly the U.S. news, it, it's how it works because we have this negativity bias where we're drawn and engaged by negative stories because, you know, if you if you think something might be a tiger out in the woods, you're better off surviving if you assume it's a tiger. And so we're drawn to the negativity. Um, and so the news becomes more and more negative. It's competing in a marketplace of negativity. And so it just builds up our anxiety and, and builds this entire erroneous risk map um, where we, we don't understand the actual risks of things. Like if you talk to people, they'll think that, you know, they'll, the thing they're most scared of is being, you know, dying in a shooting or something, whereas you're, you're a hundred or a thousand times more likely to die of uh, coronary heart disease because you, um, of the diet you're having, but we don't worry about that. Uh, there's just so much negative. There's a book I wanted to mention um, of Rolf, uh, Rolf Dobelli has a book called Stop Reading the News, where he lays out his argument for why you shouldn't read the news. And uh, he makes a really, really compelling case, which I, uh, I think everybody should think about uh, seriously. But then that brings in the question, why write poems about it? And so um, I was hoping, and I've always, and I still do, that Poets Respond is a, is a sort of antidote to that, that lets us, if we have to engage in a story, if we have this sort of psychic turmoil that the news intentionally puts us into, that we have some kind of release for it. And so of the 88,000 you know, poems that have come in, I'd like to think of that as all some kind of psychic trauma that's then released and put into a poem and hope that helps. But I, I'm never sure, even after nine years, if it's actually helping more than it's hurting. So I'm wondering what people think about that. All right, well, great. Let's hear from George first. And then after George will be Mark, and then we'll be Dick just going in the order of the hands raised. So, so my experience with this kind of thing, I remember in the 90s, when uh, there was that, that in, in the US news, there's that big thing about OJ Simpson, and the big chase with the white van and all that. And that's when I had my final, like, uh, this is not, this is just stupid. I just, ah, I just stupid. And so at that point, I stopped watching the news for maybe five or six years. I even threw away my TV and didn't even have a, a television for like two or three years. Um, but then later on, um, the first uh, atmosphere on an exoplanet was discovered and I had no idea. And I didn't find out about that till two years later. And I was like, what, what? This is like a, this is like a once in a, a once in a forever thing, you know, the discovery of an exoplanet with a, you know, whatever. And uh, so thereafter I started watching the news again, but I was very selective. I only was like, so I only picked the, the international news on the BBC so I could know like, you know, if there were wars and things occurring, because that seems to me to be at least much, much more worthy than like local, local news and also science news. But it definitely, there is that, there is that dichotomy of, of your, you know, you need to keep up. Well, you don't need to keep up with the latest news, but it's good to know what's going on. But at the same time, you don't want to be wasting all your time with these sort of frivolous things. So uh, anyways, just my two cents. Yeah, exactly. I mean, that's my experience. So I, it's not that I don't consume any media but I uh, I keep it to science, I keep it to sports, I keep it to topics I'm specifically interested in, people who cover those. And then you hear about the main story, because the thing is, especially with social media and the way that narrative is shaped through the corporate media, everybody's talking about the news story of the day every week anyway. So you sort of hear what, you know, you, you get it sort of secondhand if you're around people at all, even if you're not consuming that um that, that toxic mind virus that, that the news media is, in my opinion. So, um, I don't know, let's see, what, what do you have to say, Dick? Uh, I think that uh, Mark was ahead of me in line here. But... You, can, you can talk for a sec, it's cool. Okay, a um, bunch of things. Uh, so, I, you know, at some point I'd love to talk about poetry and its, and its role in... Um, processing the news because that's been a big really important thing in my life that that really has been a transformation for me in um in, re in doing my poets respond practice but just a couple notes on the news we call it the news as if it's a, as as if it is all the same and and there are different types of news and i think tarring news first first of all you know i grew up thinking the news was what happened at 11 o'clock at night when when the local news came on or the newspaper but it's all different now 
So I, I think I think um, the generalization that quote the news is um, in, entirely a, a corrupt or um, you know, propagandizing uh, application um, uh, sort of sells short how complex this conversation is. I've had the same experience as you, Tim, where I've been involved in a, something that's reported in the newspaper, and it was not entirely accurate. But then I've also, um, uh, you know, imagine being a woman in, a, in Ohio who has to figure out what her reproductive choices are. And if she doesn't pay attention to the news coming out of the state house or her local community, um, is at a real disadvantage and can't make decisions for her personal life. And while there's sensationalism around uh, a lot of the reporting, there is fundamental news that is important, especially to people who are more vulnerable. Um, and I just don't want to lose sight of that as we, you know, th think of news as either fake or not. It's it's way more complex than that. Um, so there's there's that. The, the the those are sort of my two fundamental takes on on why I think the general conversation about trust the news or don't trust the news oversimplifies. The, the complexity of, of what role it serves. And, you know, Katie, I'd even go to the Santiana quote about those who, you know, are um, not, um, uh, you know, who don't learn the lessons of history are condemned to repeat it. Um, this, this is another fundamental piece that, um, you know, it, just because it's complicated to find out what's going on, and just because there are all these, you know, as Tim said, these these really perverse responses we have to the, you know, the bombardment of, uh, you know, for instance, we pay, including myself, pay attention to mass shootings, even though it's m much, many more gun killings take place on, on a one-off basis in the streets of our cities. And we just don't pay attention to that, not just our cities, our countrysides and by suicide. So we, we don't have a good filter for that, but it doesn't deprive us of the obligation to try to figure out how to make our way through news. Um, and for me, I, I'm just very grateful for Rattle, Rattle in particular because of the weekly deadline in sifting through the news and finding what you know, strikes an emotional chord that I can dig deep into. And I've learned so much about how to read news by that poetic practice, because you can't bullshit your way through a poem. I mean, you can, but nobody's, it's not going to be a good poem. Yeah, I mean, that's exactly the, the point I wanted to get to, Dick. So I'm glad he got there, because I think, you know, having to write poems about the news and having that as an outlet you know, the news works if we're actually engaged with it. Um, if we're, if we're sort of looking at multiple sources, if we're, if we're, um, you know, listening to our emotional responses, um, that, you know, that's when it works at the best. When it doesn't work is when we're sort of just sitting and, and letting this aspect of the news, which I say intentionally as the news, because there is this sort of singular narrative and it's split into two, two narratives now with the, the way everything is politicized. But um but, but there's this sort of monolithic news and then there's all the other news that flies around. And one of the things I love so much about Poets Respond is when there's a, a news story that I hadn't heard about at all. It's a small, a local story, a science story, um, just a funny story that you wouldn't have heard otherwise. And you get to, to put it into a poem. I think that's a really great thing and a great way to spread news too. Because this is something that someone found and came across and, um, and then they put some of themselves into it and made uh, artistic creation out of it. So that's the aspect that I love of Poets Respond. Well, if I could add one more thing to that, um, some of the stories that I've told through Poets Respond, and, and Poets Respond, you know, gets such a wide um, audience that it, it can prompt this, is like, like the, the poem that I wrote about um, um, uh, about the trans woman who was, who was murdered um, is... I, I literally got I, maybe a couple of hundred responses from people, personal responses about I found a new way to talk to my child about about their uh, um, about their gender. I you know I, I never thought of it this way, even though it's just a little tiny 
local story about one one woman who was murdered, um, it prompted conversations and thought in people um, as 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 readers thought about ways to engage the news of you know the, this phenomena that that folks are encountering. My hand is up for one reason, which is Dick Westheimer, I would love for you to read this poem for us. It's a beautiful poem that elicited a, a great response. And like you're saying, did help people process something in a way that, you know, poetry, I think only could really reach people. So it's a great poem. I'd love to hear you read it. I'll pin it to the top too. So this is the miracle of naming. The miracle of naming. When I read of the murdered woman, Fern Feather, I thought of the myth of Icarus, because Fern had wings too, or at least feathers, although hers were ones she'd grown herself, were not sewn on by some other. She discovered uh, a way through the labyrinth of her man's body, found Ariadne's string of coming out, and followed it blinked back tears in the bright outside, was greeted as a kind of light, as a hot woman who warmed the world until some guy she knew put a knife in her for being a her. When I asked my daughter Fern's preferred pronouns, many all, she said, multitudes, I thought a miracle of naming. I go for a walk outside where impossible dandelions push through the pavement of our lane. They somehow have survived the crush of cars and me walking from here to the mailbox and back. Their butter yellow is splashed with muddy pothole water, their leaves bruised but still feeding the roots they've put down. No one welcomes these blossoms, and some neighbors would have me poison the ones that thrive here and in the yard, but I've been, and I've been slow to appreciate them myself, some days digging them out with a spike tool, others sitting beside them, listening to them whisper their rugged stories, how they've been around since before my kind created time. I go back inside. I call my daughter again and ask her about her coming out, about Fern, to talk about the world of spiked tools and poison and naming. She tells me of all the blossoms in her crushed world and all the impossible buds that will push through and bloom again and the one who won't. Her partner joins the call shows me the brisket they are preparing for Seder, tells me these tufts, tough cuts of meat take time. I savor that they prepare such a fine meal together. And even though I am a vegetarian, I ask for the recipe. Yeah, I love that poem, especially the ending. It always gives me kind of goosebumps and makes me well up a bit. It's really a spectacular poem. Thanks for sharing it. Thank and you. I was wondering, too, would you be up for So you have submitted, I think we can safely say, many poems to Poets Respond, and then you also have uh, submitted those poems elsewhere as well. So I'd be curious if, with this poem in particular, you talk about, like, your general process for how you go about doing news poems. And, too, Dick, when you do that, because I wanted to ask, too, how you go from, um, you know, the kind of, how you engage in that level that's that's really personal and that makes the poem something more than just the news story. Because when I read submissions to Poets Respond, the issue is that I get so many things that are just sort of political rants or just a sort of outleash of um, outrage where there's no poetry in there. And so how do you find the poem in the story is what I want to talk about most. Because I think that's when news poems have so much value is when we can find the, the poem inside of it. Um. So let, let me ask, answer that first. I don't know, except for what I look for during the course of the week, is metaphor. Just something that is that makes something else happen inside me. Um, and um, it can be, you know, uh, it can be ranty, um, or it can be, you know, come... Well, 
Yes, it can be ranty, but my rule of writing poems, if if I know what I'm going to think at the end of the poem, at the beginning of the poem, I'm not going to write it. So I have to just be open to not knowing where the poem is going to go. And that starts with understanding that the story that I'm reading is a metaphor for something else. Um, and And if it's not, then I'm not going to write anything. Um, so I don't know if that answers the question, but it's it's just that sense that if the poem's not going to surprise me. I'm not going to write it. Um, and the um, uh, Katie, you asked about process. I, I think I think I, that that's partly it. Is just I, I I look for something that just strikes me as it works metaphor in me. Yeah, that's a great way to put it, Dick. I love to, first of all, looking for metaphor. Like that first poem I read by Sonny Greenfield, it was the metaphor of that thoughts and prayers go out that drew the whole poem and let her discover something new in it. And you can sort of clearly see that poem develop as it goes. And and I think really, though, that's the key, is that not if you already know uh, what you're going to say, then it's not going to be a poem because a poem has to be transformative. It has to transform you in some way, or it's not actually a piece of, of creative art that's it's carving meaning out of the chaos of our experience. It's just propaganda, which is why the pin post on my um, Twitter thread for so long was um, um, art is the opposite of propaganda, because I think it technically is. Um, you know, propaganda is, is the dissemination of something that we already have preconceived, and art is the creation of something that we haven't yet conceived. And so I think they're completely opposites, and I think you have to make art out of poetry, and that's really the key. So I'm glad you, you put it that way. And, and and one more thing, Katie, I think you asked about my practice, and it's become a practice. It's a, Tim talks about poetry as a practice. This is a real practice to have this deadline, and damn, it's three o'clock in the morning on my time, and, and I don't know if Tim has, I, I could look up these statistics, I, my, my guess is unsubmittable. I'm up to two a lot of times on, on, um, on Friday night, because this practice of having this deadline is a really important part of my overall poetry practice. Um, and, and the one other thing I wanted to share is, is that it's got to be a poem. I, my hope is, is that every poem that I submit to Poets Respond will work somewhere, somewhere else a few years later, because somebody will read it and it's a poem. It stirs something in them that doesn't have to be specific to the time. Although there have been a few that are very specific, and, and that's the wonderful thing about something like New Verse News, which is very interested in immediacy. Yeah, that was one of the comments to my thread by Jim Velvis, who said, um, you know, poetry can be about the news, but it has to be timeless or it's worthless. And I think that's the, the case, too. It has to have a, a timeless aspect or else, you know, there's no point to it. Yeah, that's that's very good co-hosting because I was like, I just pulled up that quote <laughs> in my notes for this space and I'm saying, uh, so James Belva said, uh, poetry can engage with anything, including the news, but it has to ultimately be timeless or it's worthless. And so I totally agree with that. And as you were speaking, Dick, I realized that how I feel about news poems is kind of similar to how I feel about acrostic poetry, which is that acrostic, great acrostic poetry, I feel, has to go beyond just the description of the image and has to take us to some new empathetic place that we couldn't have gotten to elsewhere. And that's exactly how I feel about news poems, you know, and it makes sense, Dick, that you've written so many amazing <laughs> poems like this because you're already, your starting places is beyond the actual story. It sounds like, like you understand, you know, it's not like you're reaching to get the metaphor. It's like you have to have the metaphor in order to write the poem, which is, is very much next level, I have to say. Um, well, let's go ahead and hear from a Mark Janowski yet, the, the co-editor of One Art, who we haven't heard from, but I bet has a lot to say on this, in part because Mark responds to submissions so quickly that even though he doesn't expressly say news poems, I mean, he's right up there since he can reply so quickly to submissions, which we all appreciate. Yeah, thanks for having me. Um, this is such a good conversation. Um, Wow, there's a lot I want to say. Uh, first, uh, I wanted to say, Dick, that was that was beautiful. I hadn't read that poem of yours before, and uh, it's wonderful. And uh, what you said reminded me of um, 
from the famous Robert Frost essay that really everyone should read um, to think a little more about craft. Uh, the figure a poem makes all the way back to 1939. <laughs> um, and he has this famous line, no surprise for the writer, no surprise for the reader. And there's like a lot of other pull quotes that people don't even, they say them and don't even realize are from like these famous texts. Um, I have so many feelings on uh, news poems, political poems, you know, current events poems. Uh, the concept of news is really strange and I have pulled back myself a little bit um, partly for like sort of mental health reasons at times and then partly um, because it does sometimes just seem totally fruitless just listening to these sort of passing stories because the idea of quote news uh, to me has always suggested that it, it's actually a current event and something going on when so much of the time the stories are, are just pop culture. Um, that being said, um, additionally, you know, there's the 11 o'clock news uh, concern that came up, which does seem to achieve, uh, you know, sort of the agenda. It bleeds, it leads. And since forever, you know, that's really been a problem because it just creates fear in people. And then you get, you know, a really afraid populace, um, who thinks, who just has a real big um, sort of ignorant misunderstanding of, of what to be afraid of in our culture. Um, but I, I feel it's super important to, to acknowledge that um, I, I do believe it's important to keep up. Um, I just feel obliged to say that. I was raised as sort of uh, an NPR person and, uh, you know, um, my father sort of, I'll throw him under the bus and and he sort of is like a, a bit judgy about people that don't keep up and sort of feels that uh they're they're a little stupid you know for not uh paying attention to what the real news is and knowing what's going on uh and you know and that made it very difficult for for me myself to to pull back a little at times um and just to sort of get this uh back to tim I think it's sort of interesting that <laughs> Tim seems to have wanted to step away from, you know, this sort of everyday news that maybe isn't um, essential, but um, by having Rattle Post respond, he's, he's now inundated with massive quantities of uh, poems about the news. And it's interesting uh, to think about too how poets respond has evolved. And just just the the practice of reading poems, um, the news. You know, I think he's saying the news intentionally because there is the news as a thing. It's an entity. It's there's a certain narrative that's the the main talk of the town narrative that we push forward. It's become it, it's very easy to see how it's grown and become more monolithic, even as it's sort of split into two. Um, whereas the the first few years of Poetry Respond, there was a lot more variety. And then the Trump era came and um, it, it became sort of entangled. Everything became a political story in a way in which there was a singular political narrative. And it was very few poems that broke free of that. So we published, um, you know, so many poems about Trump and, um, you know, and and just the, the, the breakdown of political discourse and, and how buffoonish and terrible um, he is. And um, but but there are very few poems that actually, you know, found ways into to have nuanced views of that. And, and, and there's a way that poetry has just become so political as everything has become political. Um, and that is really a, a way that I think it's an anti poetry uh, movement in a sense. So, yeah. yeah what do you think, Mark? Oh, sorry. This isn't necessarily directly related but I, I had meant to say there I do disagree on one thing which is usually I would say that that poems do have to be lasting um, as opposed to timeless but I think these sort of news poems are, are an exception where there's just something to say in the moment and uh, it may be helpful to people even if it's not uh, exceptionally good poetry. I think I think it has to be good poetry to be actually helpful. I think if it if it's um, what who was it? Somebody that I interviewed um, 
used to like to say uh, that he doesn't want to contribute to the noise. And I love that expression um, um, that, that he, if he writes a poem, his biggest concern is that it doesn't contribute to the noise. And, uh, and I think if, if you're adding to the, if you're contributing to the noise, it's a negative thing. And if you're writing real poetry, it's a positive thing that we can all sort of find solace in. Um, so, so I think that, uh, oh, it was Lester Graves Lennon that said that. Yeah. Yeah. He doesn't want to contribute to the noise. And, um, and I think poetry should be a, a, a sense of clarity through the noise. And I think it has to be a good poem in order to do that. So is one thing I would say. Do you think also it's possibly just part of becoming a better poet is going through like sort of a necessary political poem space? Because for me, if I'm going to be totally honest, I, when I first got back into poetry, like I wrote a bunch of things, like I was going to change and save politics in my poems that started out with an agenda and ended with an even bigger one. And eventually I realized that it was really stupid. And like, that there were also subtle ways to incorporate things that were still, you know, like, like Dick Westheimer was saying, so importantly, you don't know where the poem's going to end up or else it's just not really a poem. So maybe it's partially like that kind of a thing. Like I had my teenage angst poems, really award-winning material there. And then I had to, the adult version of that is like, I'm going to wow you all with my political prowess in this sonnet. <laughs> well, let me, um, let me read, since we were talking a little bit about Trump and, and um, you know, coming through sort of clearly through the noise. I think the you know, of all the poems we published about Trump, this one by Rachel Custer, which was actually controversial because of it, uh, because this poem uh, right before the election empathized with Trump, which people, uh, a lot of people took issue with. So it became this sort of social media controversy. But it is a brilliant poem and um, really portrays Trump, I think, more clearly in his narcissistic personality disorder, which is just textbook malignant NPD. Um, but it uses this metaphor, like Dick was talking about before, to, to imbibe it and make you really understand what makes Trump tick. And I think if everybody read this poem and really understood what it was saying, we would understand the whole Trump phenomenon and his personality a lot better. So let me read this, How I Am Like Donald Trump by Rachel Custer. Yesterday, I said the thing I was trying to say perfectly to myself. I am something astounding. I am like the Grand Canyon, I said, by which I meant I sometimes feel hedged in by those who would sweat in hot cars for days just to stand and look at me. And people think I am saying I am a spectacle, a wonder surrounded by nothing as huge as me. And people think I am claiming majesty. People travel for days to look at the most important canyon, which is to say the biggest empty space. Sometimes I might as well kick pea gravel over the side rather than try to explain who I am and wait until I hear it hit the ground. What I'm trying to say in small, hard words that always fall away from what I mean is I am not the canyon, the immense perfection of its depth. I am more the missing earth dispersed, trying to feel whole, to believe that God makes sometimes by taking away. And, um, and that emptiness inside of Trump, which is really what drives him, so few things get at and understand. And uh, it's just a, a lack of uh, inability to feel love that drives his entire narcissism. And, um, and it took a poem to do that. You know, I've read so many articles by psychologists that don't understand it. And it's so clearly put in that poem where Rachel Custer was digging into herself and finding a way she could relate to Trump. And so that's one of the great things that poetry can do that, that the news itself can't. Yeah, Tim, I've heard you say many times, you know, poems as empathy machines and this is to me such a clear example of that like imagine the world if, if instead of you know obsessing on the sensational side of these news stories if instead of that we just took a minute minute to have empathy and try to understand that you know people are people and there's something going on behind the root of pretty much everyone and so i think that that's a great example for something that could not be accomplished as a news article but poetry can do so Dick Westheimer, you've had your hand up for a bit. Let's hear from you. And then we haven't heard from Joe Barker yet, so we'll go to Joe Barker too after that. Um, well, first of all, every time I read or hear Rachel's poem, I am just blown away. And I can't imagine reading this poem and thinking of it as a, a praise poem for Donald Trump or it, you know, just it it it's a, that that canyon that dirt taken away it's just it's so stunning so anyway thank you for reading it it made me forget what i was going to uh, say before but i did have a question for maybe mark and tim which is uh so mark i had a 
the poem that you published of mine in 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 one art, the universe and I are made from shattered space and time, which was a poet's respond poem, and um, I'm curious about what both of you as as uh, curators think about news poems that are about you know, that just take an article, you know, a headline that's in the news and find something about it, even though it's not political. Oh, I remember the other thing I was going to talk about is Taylor Molly's poem about um, uh, something about this is a political poem. The rant, the rant poem he does is just the best burn of rant poems ever. Um, but yeah, so I want to get back to this question about what you all think as curators about these poems that come in that have no political content to them, are news in the loosest sense of the word and that they're not sort of like current events. Uh, they're just headlines that come from scientific papers that week. Um, and and how you whether you really think those are news poems. I know you've published yeah. a bunch of those, Tim, but... Um, yeah, well, I'll say mine and then, and then Mark, I'd love you to jump in your thoughts too. But I think I love those poems because I think the news is not just the news. There's so much news. And when we think that what the corporate media tells us is the thing that we should all be thinking and talking about is the news and nothing else is the news, that's the real problem. And so when we find things like, um, you know, the atmosphere around an exoplanet or um, just we had tons of astronomy type um, news stories. Uh, you know, the the moon moon is one that I think of that the, that the moon has a moon. Um, there's all these little things that are just fun and interesting or really important scientifically or economically. Um, you know, Katie's poem was um, was about um, economics that she had in Poetry Respond. You haven't talked about that yet, Katie, uh, your experience with Poetry Respond. But, um, but, but there's other things, like it doesn't have to be political. And I think that's what I was trying to get at over the last, you know, since Trump in the Trump era, it's the era of everything being political and everybody having to take a side um, and make sure that your opinion and what you're voicing is in this the same political camp because if you're not in the right right camp then you're on Trump's side or something like that and so there's this that's how it's become monolithic it, it's the politicize, politicization of everything and I think that's the thing that we should be trying to avoid and having you know taking things on their own in the most objective um, nuanced way possible and that means you know looking at the whole of the news and not just what's presented by the corporate media um, so anyway what do you think about that Mark. I love them too, uh, and there's there's so many reasons why. You know, I think we're bombarded by content in modern times, and the implication that someone took a step back and paused and did a deeper dive or looked within and thought about sort of their whatever version of their self they currently have to bring to the table um, set against the information that they're receiving and it's it's you know like an ecstatic exchange in that way um and yeah i think a lot of powerful work comes out of engaging with uh with current events and articles yeah i'm a, a huge fan hey do you want to go to uh, joe we haven't talked to joe yet i'm sorry for taking up your, your host role, katie but uh but we do want to talk to joe Thanks, Tim. Yeah, so I think I'm probably repeating what other people have said, but I think some things are per worth repeating. And so my experience with reading Poets Respond and, and all the amazing things that have been cre created or crafted is that poetry can transmute the news into art. And I think that's a substantial thing. I mean, many people look at news as sort of, in a very pejorative way, I'll say it. So if you can convert that into art, that's significant. Secondly is poetry, for me at least, and when I write it, I try to give people permission to feel. And if you read a poem that resonates as it relates to some complex, emotional, trying news event, it's transformative. So those are the two thoughts I have. I, um, I think also for me, if we want to change what you know, the, the circulating news stories are and what the narratives around news stories are and what everyone's talking about, if we want to skew the world more positively, then like the best we can do without, you know, starting our own, our own magazine or, you know, becoming a huge part of the media really, I think, is to change how we consume it and then also what we choose to spread to other people. So that was kind of part of with uh, my own way of processing uh, what's going on in the news as poems, part of when I decided to 
start submitting to Poets Respond, I wanted to, like, I remember, so the first week I submitted to you, Tim, and I didn't know you at all then, but I decided to look at it as, I think that it will be easier to be published with a story that is not necessarily a story that everybody at Rattle has heard of, because I don't want to compete with a story that you guys are going to get 300 poems on. I want to be like a cool, interesting story that maybe you haven't heard of that's positive. So the first week, I think, where I ended up getting my one poem through, which was about the recession, but also about, you know, my daughter and and so a little bit nuanced with that was kind of evaluating like what was going on uh, with the recession as though it was a children's book, essentially. But the other two stories that I picked that week was there was an orca whale that was spotted in, in Paris. I went with that one, which was obviously groundbreaking news that everybody still remembers, I'm sure, a year later. And then I went with the fact that Elvis wasn't going to be allowed to marry people in Vegas anymore. So these are the stories <laughs> that resonated with me this week, and the, or that week, and that I went on. But I, I think that, you know, we should share more positive news in general, and, and not, not just focus, focus on the negative, because you know, we can create positive spirals. I think, you know, there are, there's a lot of data out there that very negative events, uh, getting a lot of publicity increases, obviously, the likelihood that they happen again. But what if we decide to do the same thing with positive stories and really let them have the same weight? Yeah, there, there's some sites that do like the good news network and things like that. And I've tried to encourage people to use those instead as, um, as inspiration for news stories instead of what the, you know, the negativity machine is feeding us every week. And I, I very clearly remember you submitting that poem last year um, because I remember thinking like, oh, this is a, a, you know, there's a sweetness to that poem and it's a different story and a different angle on a story that, that we hadn't had that week. I'm trying to look through the other, um, the other poems that week. So we had Lisa, we had Heartbreak Guzzle by Alexis Sears. There's another great poem because we published three poems that week. It was one of those weeks where I had a lot of good stuff. And so there was um, Alexis Sears' poem about the U- Uvalde shooting. Um, and it was a, it's a really wonderful guzzle, or guzzle that she wrote for that. And then there was also uh, Lisa Bickham's poem about uh, the Mona Lisa being smeared with cake in a, as a protest. And, um, and so there was both sort of negative type stories and they're great poems. But then yours, was it stood out because there was a, a sweetness to it. And I wanted to have that as part of our series. And so that's something that I'm literally always looking for, like humor and, and kindness and those kind of things, because they do that negativity bias is such a strong force in the human psyche. And we're drawn to that. We're drawn to write about it so much. There's so few positive poems relative to negative poems. And um, and it was a really great strategy. So great that you never had to submit to Poet Respond again. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it worked out better than I actually too. I'm such a nerd that like I calculated how long I would have to submit if I had an average, like just based on the data I could find at the time. And my I was seriously I'm so so strategic about things. I was going to submit three poems a week, and I figured by 500 days I would definitely be likely to have gotten a poem in. So it was smart of you just to accept that one off the bat, so you didn't have to endure my political poem space also very smart yeah i think it it, it both that we should say that that's the only reason we did nft poetry issue because when i looked up your link i was like what the hell are nft poems and yeah. i thought well we have to do an issue on this this is something strange and different and then uh, and also i think it spared you um a year or so of um having to watch the news every day <laughs> so, thank you for that so your, the, your soul is is, is kept pure. my soul is cleaner though to be fair my strategy on that too since i'm giving away all my secrets that i can't use myself anymore not to me um is that i was looking at the npr strange news too because i think that that has a lot of a lot of great potential to to look for poems on and to try to send you something that was encouraging and it is interesting because you don't normally pick three poems and it was probably close because, you know, it was my first poem I ever got published. So um, if I had written about one of the other things, I wouldn't have gotten published probably. So it's interesting. Unless you decided yeah. that that Elvis poem was worth it, which it was not. Do not reread it. It was terrible. <laughs> <laughs> I won't. Don't worry. So, um, but it is an interesting subject too, is the decision that I had to make every week about whether or not we should address the big, because there's always this, the nature of the news is that there's one story that half the poems are about. And do I pick the best poem about that to represent what uh, people are talking about and sort of per- contribute in a good way to that probably negative story? Or um, or do I find some alternative? And um, 
And that's always a thing that I sort of I'm never quite sure about. And so a lot of times when I'm, um, you know, because if, if, if half the poems are written about one thing, the best poem is probably going to be written about that thing. Um, but then if there's like a poem that's not quite as good, but it's about something different and it's a different take and we haven't had a poem in that mood or about that topic in a long time, you know, do I go with that? There's so many difficult decisions with what poem to pick when you only have a couple slots and so many poems to choose from. Well, I think I should say that you and Megan do an amazing job with doing this every week. It's a huge undertaking. And it's it's super cool that that even being as huge a journal as you guys are, that you manage to do this every week, week in, week out. And I think you strike an excellent balance of getting the, I'm not pretending like I think that you should only do the fringe happy stories. Of course, you know, we need to talk about that. But poetry can be more than that, too. And I think you do an awesome job of representing that. Well, thanks. It is. Uh, sometimes it's tough when, uh, like, I remember um, reading uh, poet response submissions in the hospital while my son was being born and then uh, having to, to pick a poem like the next day. I mean, there's stuff like that where it's just, you know, you keep at it and, uh, you know, I've never missed a week. And that's even true this week when you are, you know, stifling coughs and doing the space right now with all that, which is very nice. <laughs> so, I should probably go ahead and get to the closing poem at this point, do you think, unless you have any, any thoughts you think we should cover first? No, I think that'd be good. Why don't you do the closing poem? All right. So I stole a closing poem from your thread. Thanks for making that excellent thread. If, if anybody didn't see it, Tim made a thread of his like favorite Poets Respond poems, and um, it, was, it was super enlightening, too, if you're looking to submit. It's a really good indication of, like, what you like the best and those poems are just incredibly strong in that thread so it's fun to read through so the poem i picked from there is one of my favorites obviously and this is a michael mark poem i'm a big fan of michael mark and his chapbook that i'm afraid to uh to just verbalize because it has a long title and i'm looking for it right now because i want to be able to say it <laughs> i'll say it i'll say it. it's uh visiting her in queens is more enlightening than a month in a monastery in tibet Okay, so hopefully you guys think it's fair that I couldn't rattle that off, but it's right there. Now I see it on my, on my bookshelf now that I already said it. Anyway, so this became part of that chapbook that you guys picked for the Rattle Chapbook series, and I really like this song. <clears throat> so this is called A Daily Practice, and I should say, I also really like how the poets respond at the bottom. You know, it gives an author's note as to what was happening. So Michael Mark wrote this actually in response to the inventor of post-it notes passing away. So that's definitely of my fringe news category speaking thing. So it is called a daily practice. After I write temporary on each sticky note and press them onto socks, silverware, bills, my hair, I put one on each maple tree in the yard and notice I don't think of them as eternal as much. All it takes is a single written word on red, yellow, green tags to remind me the car isn't mine, the house isn't mine. Snow, money, flowers do just that being themselves, but I stick one on fear and another on hate, pushing with all my weight so they stay. Dogs are born with the knowledge, so no need. But old people, even shrinking in hospice beds, yes. Somehow they transform temporary into still here. Babies are so hard, I almost can't. When the pad is empty, I wait for the glue to lose its grip and fight the urge to blow or peel them off. Sometimes the wind comes and I stumble around trying to catch them. So I love that poem. It's, I don't know if it's my favorite Michael Mark poem. I know he's had multiple poet response poems too. Um, but man, that's a good poem from him. Yeah, that really is. I, I just always love Michael Mark. He'll be listening. And uh, it's a great poem. Well, I want to thank everybody for coming today. I thought it was a super interesting discussion. Um, Stick West Timer 2, you opened my eyes more to, to sort of maybe I was having a slightly simplistic view of looking at the news where I am so positivity bent that I just want to be optimistic all the time. It's kind of my natural impulse. So that was really interesting. And thanks for sharing your poem and for talking to us, Odd Writings and Joe Barca and Mark Danowski. Thanks for sharing your wisdom as the editor of One Art. And of course, to you, Tim, my co-host. Yeah, thanks, Katie. It's been great.
Oh, wait, we've got to say what we're going to talk about next week, which should be the antidote to this week's theme also. Yeah, next week we're going to talk about humor in poetry. Uh, that was a, a suggestion by Cries, who will be here next week, I assume. And, yeah, he, uh, said, he better be here because he said if we postponed <laughs> it, he couldn't be here this week, but then he'd be here next week for it. So hopefully, uh, hopefully you've published some funny poems over the years, Tim. I tend to think you have. Yeah, not not as many as I'd like, and um, and that's what someone will talk about. The humor issue is the most difficult issue of Rattle that we had to put together. Um, and then there's so few places for it. I, I had a poem in a light, uh, light magazine a couple of weeks ago, and uh, they're the, the one of the few light verse poetry magazines out there. And so I'd like to highlight that a little more and just how to get more humor into poetry. It's a tough thing to do, actually. Yeah, it was tough before you met me, but now I'm here and it's just like too many funny poems, right? No, but poems are not funny at all. <laughs> Thanks, you guys, so much for joining us. I hope you can tune in next week, too. And until then, have a great week, whether or not you're listening to the news. <laughs> yeah, bye, everybody. Bye.